Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Kelly Dry Full Spectrum is produced twice monthly, and show notes are available at www.kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog, comlawmonitor.com. All links are in the show notes. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Hello, and welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast. Today we're going to look at a recent decision by the Ninth Circuit that could redefine the jurisdictional boundaries between the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, and the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, and the legal arguments advanced by the FTC and the request for en banc review. My name is Matt Weinman. I'm a paralegal in Kelly Dry's Communications Group. I'm joined in the studio by John Heitman, the chair of our communications group. So, John, can you start us off by laying out what was the case before the Ninth Circuit? Sure, Matt. The Ninth Circuit dismissed a case that the FTC brought against AT&T over its practices in connection with wireless data services provided to AT&T's customers with, quote-unquote, unlimited data plans. The FTC had filed a complaint against AT&T for, quote-unquote, throttling or artificially reducing the speed of the data usage of customers grandfathered into AT&T's unlimited data plans. Once customers had used a certain level of data, typically 3 gigabytes on 3G networks and 5 gigabytes on LTE networks, AT&T would dramatically reduce their data speed, sometimes by nearly 90%. The throttling was not a network congestion management tool, as it would be done regardless of the network's current traffic load. The FTC asserted that AT&T's practice of throttling was an unfair act or practice, and that AT&T's failure to adequately disclose the policy was a deceptive act or practice. Both of the asserted actions violate Section 5 of the FTC Act. In a complaint brought against AT&T, the FTC alleged that AT&T had conducted internal focus groups testing and found that consumers clearly thought unlimited should mean unlimited. So, John, what was AT&T trying to argue before the Ninth Circuit? Matt, at issue before the Ninth Circuit was not the merits of the FTC's case per se, but the scope of the FTC Act's exemption of quote-unquote common carriers from the FTC's authority. The FTC argued, and the trial court previously held, that the common carrier exemption from Section 5 applied only to the extent that the service in question is a common carrier service. This is also called an activity-based test, as in only the activity of providing common carrier services is exempt from FTC jurisdiction. Because the service that the FTC challenged wireless broadband internet access service was not a common carrier service at the time that the FTC brought its action against AT&T, the trial court held AT&T was not engaging in common carrier activity, and therefore the FTC had authority to bring its lawsuit. AT&T appealed the decision, arguing that the FTC Act's exemption of common carriers should be based on their status as a common carrier, and thus telecommunications service providers like AT&T are automatically exempt from the FTC's authority regardless of whether the activity at issue is a common carrier service. The Ninth Circuit noted that it is Undisputed that AT&T is and was a common carrier subject to the acts to regulate commerce for a substantial part of its activity, even though during the time period in question, AT&T's mobile data service was not identified and regulated by the FCC as a common carrier service. 
With the FCC's 2015 Open Internet Order, the FCC reclassified the service in question as a common carrier service. The Ninth Circuit sided with AT&T and remanded the case for an entry of an order for dismissal. The court held that under the plain language of the statute, the common carrier exemption is based on a company's status and applies regardless of the activity at issue. What does that mean, the plain language of the statute? Matt, the court wrote that a, quote, literal reading of the words Congress selected simply does not comport with an activity-based approach to the common carrier exemption. The court compared the common carrier exemption to other exemptions in the statute for banks, savings and loan institutions, federal credit unions, air carriers, and foreign carriers that are admitted by the FTC to be status-based exemptions. It also compared the exemption for meat packers, which is admitted to be an activities-based exemption. The court held that amendments enacted in 1958 to Section 5 indicated an activity-based exemption for meat packers, but affirmed status-based exemptions for all others, then and now. It is interesting that the Ninth Circuit chose to address this status question rather than addressing a more narrow issue of whether the FCC's 2015 reclassification of broadband as a telecommunications service applied to AT&T's service retroactively, thereby stripping the FTC of jurisdiction. Although the Ninth Circuit did not discuss past decisions, this is the second time that a court of appeals has faced status-based arguments relating to the common carrier exemption in recent memory. The Second Circuit's 2006 decision in FTC versus Verity International Limited involved an entity claiming common carrier status, but the Second Circuit denied the entity had common carrier status and did not bring finality to the question of whether the FTC has authority over common carriers to the extent such entities are engaged in non-common carrier activity. So what did the FTC do after this ruling? On October 13th, the FTC filed a petition for en banc review by the full Ninth Circuit. The FTC argues that the court created an enforcement gap cutting across the American economy. The FTC pointed out that common carriers such as Verizon, Comcast, and Google are engaged in a number of businesses beyond just communication services. But under the Ninth Circuit's ruling, they would be fully exempt from FTC oversight. The FTC argues that this gap also stems from the limitations placed on the FCC. The FCC typically does not seek direct consumer redress and instead imposes fines payable to the U.S. Treasury. In some past enforcement settlements, however, such as the recent T-Mobile settlement, the FCC actually has secured consumer refunds, but they are executed through the company, unlike the FTC method in which the company turns over funds to the FTC, which oversees the distribution of those funds. The FCC is also limited by a one-year statute of limitations, while the FTC is not. The FTC suggests that the ruling could also lead to companies acquiring common carriers to immunize themselves from FTC oversight. This would lead to an unequal enforcement when the same practices are followed by two companies, but one is a common carrier and the other is not. So that is an argument based on the practical effects of the ruling. What legal arguments did the FTC advance? Matt, the FTC also argues that the Ninth Circuit improperly interpreted the statute, arguing that when the law was enacted, common carriers was commonly understood to be an activity-based designation. 
So the court erred when it found that if Congress had intended to adopt an activity-based approach, it would have been expected that Congress would have been more precise in the statutory language. In fact, the FTC argues that there was no need for Congress to spell it out more explicitly. Additionally, the FTC argues that the court garbled its review of the legislative history. Many other parties weighed in supporting an en banc review, such as the FCC, Senator Richard Blumenthal, the senior Democratic senator from Connecticut, and a significant number of consumer advocacy groups. The FCC, in its brief, noted the agency's history of cooperation and pointed to the MOU the two agencies signed in 2015 to avoid duplicative, redundant, and inconsistent oversight. The FCC agrees with the FTC that the FTC has jurisdiction over non-common carrier services of entities that also engage in common carrier services. The FCC also questions the literalist approach taken by the panel, which is at odds with the realities of the marketplace and the many lines of businesses common carriers engage in today. The FCC suggests that the ruling could impact the division of responsibility the FCC is trying to reach with the FTC on broadband privacy, for example. More broadly, the FTC has openly called for the end of the common carrier exemption in the past few years. This decision may add fuel to the agency's effort in that regard to get Congress to change the statute. So, John, what are some of the broader ramifications of the decision? Is the FTC onto something in its request for review? Matt, as is, the decision makes it more difficult for the FTC to bring an action against a company that could claim to be a common carrier. The Ninth Circuit's decision noted that AT&T unquestionably was a common carrier for a substantial part of its activity, and at one point distinguished the case, noting that AT&T's status is not based on its acquisition of some minor division unrelated to the company's core activities. Nevertheless, the court's analysis leaves open the possibility that even providing only a small amount of common carrier service may be enough to qualify all of the company's activities for the common carrier exception from FTC jurisdiction. On the FCC side, there are equally broad questions raised by the decision. The FCC recently has broadly construed its own authority under Section 201B of the Communications Act to a fair degree of controversy to address practices of common carriers for or in connection with their services such as advertising and billing. These efforts, no doubt, will continue after the Ninth Circuit's ruling. The court's decision may also encourage the FCC to fill any potential gaps in enforcement coverage by taking a broader view of its own authority to regulate non-common carrier services that common carriers offer to consumers. This could have significant implications for a number of ongoing FCC proceedings, including the recently completed proceeding to overhaul the FCC's privacy rules after the open internet order, and request to classify SMS messaging and interconnected voice over internet protocol, or VoIP service, as telecommunications services subject to common carrier regulation. Time will tell how this plays out, but for now, the Ninth Circuit appears to have significantly reset the boundaries between the agency's jurisdictions, at least in the western United States. I want to note that AT&T's response to the FTC's request for en banc review is due November 8th, which is after the date we have recorded this podcast. Also noteworthy is the fact that AT&T is not off the hook yet, as it faces a parallel action from the FCC, which has issued a notice of apparent liability alleging that AT&T's disclosures in connection with its unlimited data plans violated the FCC's open internet transparency rule. 
The FCC proposed $100 million in forfeitures for the violation, which sparked vigorous dissent by the two Republican commissioners and was opposed by AT&T in a strongly worded response. The FCC enforcement proceeding remains pending. Thank you, John, and thank you to all of our listeners. Be sure to be on the lookout for our podcast on the FCC's broadband privacy order coming out later this month. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or ideas held by Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management.